I found various biographies online to describe you as you don't have your own yeah. website. And so I'll read something out and maybe you can comment on the accuracy of these. Mm. Certainly, yes. Okay, so I have Adam Bowman has been described as an extraordinary artist who's one of the few that actually really do fit that overplayed and often undeserved term maverick. So that was one thing. Another is Adam Bowman has been operating on the outer fringes of underground music for decades, working with home-built instruments, found objects, tape cutouts, collages, ink drawings and graphic scores. Favouring acoustic sounds over electronics, he explores the minute tendrils of sound coaxed from any number of non-musical instruments and objects. He is a member of British experimental groups Morphogenesis, the Bowman Brothers, Secluded Bronte and London Improvisers Orchestra. Adam's music is unique, experimental, incorporating fluxus japery, music concrete, sound poetry and free improvisation. So would you say any of that was uh, Yeah, I, I, I think that's kind of generally true. Uh, I, I think all the comments there are, are generally true. Uh, okay. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. That's accurate. So I'm interested in how you first started playing. Did you play an instrument to start with? Well, I, I, I did play an instrument to start. And ironically, it was the violin very early on. And this is about 1966. But it was a situation where you had to reach a certain, even at that age, you had to reach a certain standard of violin play. I think it was Mrs. Irwin in a, in a sort of junior school okay. in um, in Ashford, Middlesex, because that's where I'm from, slightly outside of London. Okay. And uh, for whatever reason, I mean, it's so many years ago, it's more than 50 years ago now, uh, that I don't kind of remember much about it at all. But then uh, I didn't play an instrument for years and years at all. Right. And then in secondary school, there was the trumpet and, well, before that, the cornet. And it was, it was like a secondary school. It was like a boy's secondary school. And some for some peculiar reason, there was no music teaching in the school uh, whatsoever. They did hire a music teacher uh, once, uh, probably about 1972 or three, but he was only there for a very short time. It was the geography teacher who encouraged people to take up the a trumpet. I was never a very good cornet or a tr trumpet player as such. I can play tunes. In fact, I still have a trumpet. You know, at a certain point, I became more interested in building my own instruments and developing my own sound. But I've been in amateur orchestras and things yeah. like that, the civil service orchestra and then the Hounslow Youth Orchestra okay. in the late 70s, but I, I, I was never hugely interested in it, you know. And was that classic? Not so that was classical music? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Classical. It was playing kind of Mozart, Beethoven, mostly 19th century, but um, occasional 20th century piece, Malcolm Arnold and things like that. So when did you start to think about or listen to or play more experimental or improvised? Well, music? it would be in the early 70s you know like uh, uh like a lot of people you know hearing um a music on the radio charles fox um who's a sort of elderly kind of jazz 
critic um, who ran, who introduced several jazz programs, sort of Jazz Today and perhaps other ones. He used to have improvised, sort of Tony Oxley, Evan Parker, um, the pianist Howard Riley, a, a spontaneous music ensemble. So I'd, I'd hear all these things and perhaps not like or understand them at, at that very early stage, but I, I found something very intriguing about it. So fairly spontaneously over a period of time, I began to listen uh, more and more and, and to build my own instruments. Okay. And at that very early stage, we're talking about 1973 probably, uh, my dad had a, a kind of u or a Grundig kind of reel-to-reel tape recorder and Jonathan, my brother and I, used to experiment with that, just recording sounds. I distinctly remember recording a flushing sort of toilet, you know, putting the microphone on the system. And so all these things happen fairly spontaneously. It's never a, a sort of decision. You don't wake up one morning and decide to do this. It happens gradually over a period of time because obviously in most people's lives there's kind of thousands of decisions they could make or not make and it just sort of it just developed from there really and we played in a group with Jonathan and two friends Halliford Dallas and Robert Nutt who lived locally in Ashford and we formed our own kind of rock bands. Oh, okay, rock at this stage. But unlike a lot of um, people who are involved in rock bands, it it never, ever developed into live performances. It was just kind of performing in each other's front rooms, kind of Saturday afternoon rehearsals. And this is a like six form from the earliest recording uh, okay. was like 1985 and these two friends came round uh, the Cliff and Rob and we, we just had a couple of biscuit tins and I can't remember who it was either Cliff he sort of pulled a, a book down an old book from the bookcase and it was like Shelley or something uh, <laughs> And he just read out from that, you know, okay. so that was the first ever recording, probably as early as 1975. But so this was like pseudo kind of experimental, not necessarily improvised, but there was a lot of improvising happening. We think of a structure and at that early period, it was all kind of homemade instruments like tins for drums and um, some of my homemade stringed instruments I begin to make. And, and then gradually over the period rob plays for electric keyboards and cliff was on electric guitar and um so you you had a kind of rock band but there wasn't a name for that that was just you playing well we had various names the cranium punch i think the cranium bunch is the only one i remember okay and then out of that there were various kind of solos and duos and these were all at that time it was obviously pre-digital so these are all sort of tapes right. you know c60s c90s or whatever and we made up kind of tape albums at that point we never sold any they were just listened to amongst the groups so a, um so perhaps unlike other people who started in music as um, teenagers there were never any kind of live performances okay 
Um, it was all um, recorded at material. all, but it okay. was kind of recorded and stuff, you know. I mean, we did actually record it on sort of pre-digital so cassette where, recorders okay. and everything. So where was the transition from, te- so your recordings from Sunbury, and, and then when yeah. did you first perform experimental or improvised music? Well, I, I, suppose, I suppose before I moved um, to London, I was a member of... Uh, a workshop group called Cockpit Improvised Music, okay. which was at the Cockpit Theatre in Marylebone that I think exists still. And it was like a workshop, and I joined it before I moved. If I remember correctly, I moved to London in in the summer of 1983, but I'd already joined the um, kind of improvising orchestra and i and and ironically uh like several other people i was like too old because it was meant to be for teenagers (laughs) and i was 23 i think at that at that point you know but i mean they just had to make concession for that because most of the people were older than it um, was meant to be for okay and we uh we met on saturday afternoon and there's like a Scottish composer Ian McQueen who used to run the session then he moved to Sweden or somewhere else and uh, and another person took over Teddy Teddy <laughs> Coleridge he did several live concerts but but mostly of these Saturday afternoon sessions where a widely disparate kind of group of people would turn up you know and so and what, Right. Yeah. And were you t- you were bringing your objects then, or your made instruments? Trumpet. Initially, my huh? trumpet. So I, I started playing improvised music on the trumpet. But then, I I'd already kind of built a number of homemade stringed instruments, and I'm sure for a period of time I was playing those completely acoustically. Right. And then there must have been a period where I bought bought the microphones that. Contact mics and a small lamp. So, where was the inspiration to make the instruments? Like, did you just? Well, I, I I'd been making homemade uh, stringed instruments from around 1973, okay. and then playing them, you know, like shovels with the bits of things attached to them, or pieces of wood with kind of hooks and odd bits of wire and things. Okay. So I've been making. Of those for a long time so it's just a natural extension to prepare them right. and I, I i do remember a period when we were living in sunbury where there was a distinct period not necessarily influenced by sort of fred friff or keith rowe people but but just out of practicalities where i had like an old violin a very cheap chinese violin because my father was involved in education he was the musical advisor for Ealing. He'd been a music teacher in the fifties um, through the early seventies, and then it, um, the next step was becoming a musical advisor. Right. And he brought home a load of violins, cheap Chinese lark ones, and I'd obviously borrowed one and messed it up. They're very cheap, and he right. said, "And he said you can hang on to that." So that's still the violin that you might. Seen me play, which is on your table. Uh, yeah, okay. I mean, I've not played the violin as such um, for about two years now, right. but I, I, I tend to 
go through phases as I'll, I'll play this this very old violin that only has two strings and a piece of tile for a bridge so i've adapted to my perfect it's really smashed up but right. but um miraculously it's still <laughs> intact after more than 30 years you know so so i'd be playing that for most of the time um and then like bringing it along to the sessions with other uh, stringed instruments as well because there's the halalaika as right. well one of the triangular sound boxes you've not seen me play no, no i've never seen and it a whole load of other ones very primitive homemade <laughs> stringed instruments i don't see myself as an ins instrument instrument maker as such because they're such a kind of basic level but they do work i mean all i have is like a piece of wood and some hooks and some nails and perhaps some super glued bits of tile or glass to act as bridges and um they amplify very well if you stick a, yeah. a microphone on it's fine you know so that's you how the do. table sort of evolves i'd like to know how the table evolves well the table is um is just like full of objects that are, mm. are very easily found you know as i mentioned before bits of tile and glass knitting needles um all different types of material that I think I can use. But the interesting thing is I don't self-consciously look for them in charity shops. You usually find what you want just just, just actually lying in the street. Okay. I mean, sometimes I will make a decision. If I see an object in a charity shop, I'll buy it. But I don't go consciously looking for them in these shops. I mean, <laughs> as a general rule, I'll, I'll be looking for records and and um, DVDs or whatever, things yeah. like that. And I'll suddenly see something and say, oh, well, I can use that, you know. Oh, okay. So, so I, suppose that, I suppose there must have been a point where these objects weren't actually stuck down. Because now what happens, I, I usually have one or two stringed instrument on, on the table. There's a whole load of objects that are played in conjunction with the stringed instrument. I mean, sometimes separately. And in addition to that, there's all the knitting these, the, the things, the objects that are, are made to play these other objects, if you want, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. before. And, and obviously things that you can pick up, like forks that are very resonant, old, old forks okay. are very resonant. And, and you can attach them, you can attach rings to these objects. So there's more of a resonance. Yeah to them so this sort of happens slowly over a, a period of time it's not it, it's never been a very sort of self-conscious thing i mean i i do write down a lot of the preparations and and there is a more formal side to it when i'm, I'm doing pieces i write instructions about what to do but i don't sort of self-consciously plan kind of improvisations no. because what happens is um, um certainly like any other instrument you do need to practice to have that facility um to be able, able to do things but um it's not a facility where you're thinking about doing things in any order it's yeah. just having that that kind of freedom to be able to think oh i kind of worked out a whole load of sounds i could possibly use them oh so if you're writing so you're writing a text piece and not you know like an instruction piece 
Yeah, yeah, you follow those instructions. You'd follow the instructions yeah, you, with you what you have on the table. But the instructions are kind of fairly open yeah. to kind of interpretate. Okay. I never have very has to be Has thing. to be this yeah. class. Has okay. to be this or okay. that. I mean, Great. everything's very open. Okay. So even so, even the kind of written pieces have a kind of improvisational feel to them. Okay. You know, whether they be uh, kind of instrumental pieces or sort of text pieces, which we haven't really kind of moved on to. No. Well, what yeah, this but, is a good point to actually just listen to something from your latest album. So what we'll do is we'll go through and pick something, and then we'll talk about it. Certainly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. yeah. was from your music and words too crimson catfish yeah that's right yeah tell me how that came about <laughs> well it's it, it's um sometimes hard for me to remember individual um mm. pause pieces i call them because um as i was saying before this is something i really used to enjoy but unfortunately the sort of the technology um that I, I used at that point, all these old kind of cassette recorders have kind of fallen into kind of disuse. And, and, and you really need the analogue kind of recorder, like a mechanical right. pause switch, which, which makes it much easier. Because what these were, um, all these um, kind of short um, pause pieces, were kind of recording a very wide range of mostly acoustic sounds and sort of multi-tracking them um, except doing so in a very primitive way using old style kind of rectangular mono recorders and, and perhaps a perhaps large stereo one so you build up textures using the pause and switch kind of during the recording process right. and then uh, when you have all these kind of tapes you might have about 10 tapes you could perhaps write a piece with these instructions then then kind of join them all together and i think i think the one you just heard it, it's hard to remember uh the sound sources for individual pieces but that that might have been a euphonium that i borrowed from from the improvised music concession at the 
cockpit theater that they uh, allowed me to take this small euphonium sound. That's that's why it's on the low. But I think it's mixed with a kettle going to push along the windowsill. <laughs> it's made a very extraneous sound and maybe prepared rings and extracts. There's, I'm sure there were, I'm sure there were a few voices there. So at the time, it would be kind of 1980s uh, TV, I suppose. Oh, okay. And so there's a whole series of pieces that were on a on a tape that mixed kind of those elements. So you'd have uh, bits of TV programs and and all these noises. Right. So that's what that uh, piece was. Okay. In a sense. So it's kind of a very fast. So you'd, I mean, it's a, a fairly laborious kind of process in a way, particularly if it's like fast. And pausing, you know, you could take several hours to do sort of two minutes because yeah. you'd be putting one t- uh, tape in, and <laughs> depressing the pause switch. But it, it's something I, I kind of really enjoyed doing. And obviously, you'd use the headphones while you were doing it, right. you know, okay. stuff. So, and so there's a lot of those uh, type of pieces. I think I think there's a few of them of sort of different types. In fact, you might like to listen to that piece um, among the. Twinkling stars. Okay. Because um, that's an example. I think I think there were ex- extracts from a children's radio program on that, okay. and sort of hence the title. And the uh, the sort of sellotape sounds because sellotape produces. I mean, if you can like like put one end, if you could like stretch a length of sellotape. And there's a lot of I think there's a lot of silences in this piece as well. Or short silences, anyway. Okay, let's have a little listen to yeah, okay. Among the Twinkling Stars. And this is from the same album, Music and Words, yeah, too. that's right. So this would be about 1984 or, or five, I would think, yeah. Uh, taken in and counted up. Anyway, already got enough. Told he's already got. Do you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. 
these far, the animals add up to do things. Or because he's no, because he's no child. Or because he's no, because he's no child. Or because he's no. British government. because he's no chance of for a particular candidate uh, taken in and and counted and before we get to I don't know shall we it would be the voter who would yes there were thousands here plus the international meeting up again it was almost overflowing last night and the until in the end she got used to it and perhaps what are you talking about <laughs> when you die it, it's your problem <laughs> Twinkling stars. So, does that bring back memories of any time, particularly? It Not just, does. Yeah, um, it it does because it was my first, my first sort of headset kind of accommodation since leaving home, and it was okay. in Finsbury Park, right. and I'd obtained it through my job, which was in the civil service, you know, sort of Department of Trade and Industry, and at that time, it's only sixteen fifty a week oh my goodness which was extraordinarily sort of cheap even then you know yeah. it was quite uh, and you had to put 50 pences into electric and <laughs> gas meters but i i sort of had a lot of my stuff there and i used to kind of record it there were a few complaints from neighbors <laughs> really because obviously i wasn't able to make all the sounds through the headphones obviously which is <laughs> <laughs> so so was it this time that you actually um, started collaborating with anybody else in London or were you still working with your well, brother? Uh, well, not at that stage. I mean, right. from uh, about 83 to maybe uh, 1986 or 7, uh, my main improvising was done at this workshop. Right. I mean, at that early stage, I wasn't um, sort of an improviser as such on the scene. No. Uh, you know, I hadn't kind of... Um, had much experience of doing it and we did do one concert with this uh, musician called Paul Heaven who's now who was a member of the Do Fi 
Collective, okay. uh, which is a very, which is a very well known kind of early music. But he was into experimental music as well. He he joined the cockpit improvised music before me. You know, and it, okay. I think we played with Jonathan. So it's like a trio. Your brother Jonathan Bowman at 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 right. Hugh Metcalf's venue, because it's oh. always called the same thing. The Clinker. So that was my first kind of independent. I mean, as far as I can remember, that was my first independent uh, concert, um, sort of outside the workshop right, situation. Okay. Um, and so, did you then? Then you you actually ran your own club. Was that a long time after? Oh or? yeah, yeah. Or, or? That was a long oh, time right. okay. afterwards. I went through a period of organising. Right. Um, concerts at the old LMC which is in Hamden Town right. up to 1989 he used to have a, a permanent residence there which okay. is extraordinary in an old warehouse that was uh, owned by the railway actually okay. and they used to have performances there every night it's something that's never been sort of duplicated what year was that Peter so we've since. jumped ahead well, from, a, from around 1978 it oh, existed right. From 1978, so think about 1989. So this is the London the Musicians. Oh right, is this the uh, London Musicians? Yeah, collective? London Musicians Collective. They went right. through a kind of wilderness period where nobody knew what was happening. Where there was no permanent base right. for them, and then they went through a lot of changes, uh, which aren't uh, which aren't really relevant to this no. particular interview. But no, okay, we won't. At that time, it was yeah. extraordinary. Okay. I organised several concerts for uh, the cockpit improvised music as well as more for Genesis. Okay, okay well, let's um, go back, yeah. let's go back, because I jumped ahead then thinking that. Yeah. So um, what about um, morphogenesis? Is, is well, that... uh, 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 morphogenesis is kind of very interesting because um, the origins of it were slightly before I moved to London. Okay. And I was still working in the, seven, uh, in the civil service and commuting backwards and forwards from Sunbury right. in, the, in Middlesex. And um, I met this person, Roger Sutherland, who's like an English teacher, but with an interest in uh, contemporary music. And he, he taught kind of new music classes. At, I think it was like City University in East, um, in East London. And we just got talking at sort of concerts. And then when I kind of moved to London, I used to pop round his house about once a week and just listen to stuff. And he had loads of uh, books on abs abstract art that I, I did know something about. But I, I, okay. I was a bit cynical, but he sort of turned me on to it. I could see the sort of difference between one painter and another. And then from his his kind of new music evening class, he formed his own band is it that the scratch orchestra oh right was yeah. he with the scratch orchestra he was a member oh, right. of the scratch okay. orchestra and and another person was dave jackman dave jackman who was slightly earlier and he he had his own solo project called right. Carnum. but i mean this is sort of a bit beside the point yeah. but but the thing is i wasn't aware of dave jackman's existence um, for a few years and he kind of suddenly mentioned the name and Dave Jackman kind of joined in a kind of morphogenesis session at the London Filmmakers 
co- cooperative, which was next door to the LMC in the, oh, okay. in the sort of final days of the <laughs> of the LMC. You so know. you actually formed a band with Morphogenesis Yeah, with except you. I, I didn't um, join in the first few sessions. He used to, like, right. tell me about it. At our regular the meetings around his flat, he used to um, tell me about this band. Oh, okay. And I believe I joined for the fifth or or sixth session. Okay. And and that was all that was always at Morley Morley College near Elephant. Yeah. Yeah, just down so the road effectively from here. around Yes, around the yeah. corner. And oh, okay. um this sort of sound engineer Ron, who I might have told you about Ron No. Freefall. Right. Um he was a, a sound engineer uh, working for this Australian composer who, who sadly who, who sadly died um, called Barry Anderson. Barry Anderson. Yeah, Barry Anderson. Oh. And Phil Vaxman was involved in it as well. So Ron was a, a sort of sound engineer, but he also became attached to Morphogenesis. Okay, right. Okay. And we used to do for a very long um, period of time, Morphogenesis was a regular band. I mean, anyone who had a, a um, who had a mixing desk, it was improvised, but it went through a mixing desk or whatever. Anyone actually with a mixing desk was a desk was host to the sessions. Okay. Um, so initially, it was always at Morley, at Morley College. And at that time, obviously pre-digital. We're talking about nineteen eighty five or six. Now, the first ever session I went to it was like a tape it was like tape so it would be like a C90 so we do sort of two 45 minute improvisations and then we got slightly more discriminating <laughs> later on and they and they were like shorter ones you okay know? but but um, this occurred for a very long period of time unfortunately not a lot of live uh, concerts but we did play in germany later on we did play yeah. in germany was that in was cologne this, the, and belgium okay, as well okay and the yeah. scene at, in london at that time mm-hmm. were there other were there many improvising clubs then at that time uh, there seemed to be i mean mm-hmm. perhaps not as many as there are now and there was another band that was formed slightly later called conspiracy conspiracy with a uh, with uh, someone who's a lawyer in the city, Nick Caldry, who plays with electric keyboards. And, and this piano. was you as well? In and Andy Hammond, yeah. Oh, right. And Andy Hammond, this uncle John Telfer, who's like okay. a saxophonist. And that kind of emerged out of uh, something I, I, I didn't mention before, but it was around the same time. When I first moved to London, I, I think it was my father who kind of suggested it, but there was an evening class at the City Literary Institute run by Phil Vaxman who's like it's uh, like an improvising violinist you're very well known okay. so I, I was part of Phil Vaxman's eve, evening class which was uh, sort of a non-vocational one you kind of turned up about 5.30 or 6 o'clock it was a very long um, class it was about some, from 5 to 8.30 or so or something and so it was improvising but as well as small small electronic music studio with all patchwork board synths in so people could make their own tape pieces which was ideal for me because i'd record my sounds do pause pieces except they're multi-layered ones you know on 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 the stuff that they so how many years did you do well i i I was 
probably there if i was to be I'm very honest, I'm probably there for kind of too long because <laughs> it, it kind of intersected with the digital era. And I think Phil had to adapt to that. So at a certain point, the improvisation section, which was always at the end, that that was abandoned. Right. And it was just people turning up to use digital, uh, the new sort of computer kind of technology. And I, I, I kind of hang on, I hang on too long. There were... Well, live sort of concerts that we did and everything. Right. Sometimes it was linked to what Phil was doing at Morley um, College. I think okay. I think Morphogenesis. I think Morphogenesis sort of um, performed at Morley as well. Okay. Yeah. So there was a certain certain linkage. Yeah. To, uh, between the two, but I mean, I, I think I think Phil Vaxon's evening class was ex extremely important because it was there I met Nick, uh, uh, Nick Caldry. Right. And um, and this was another collaboration that continued. Yeah, that's right. And we did a CD. We did a CD on Eddie Prevo's uh, uh, label, Matchless. Right. Uh, I mean, it, it's so long ago. I I don't really like um, the album now, but it's it's. What like was a, the album called? Um, uh, the album called In Intravenous. 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 Yeah, on Matchless. Uh, probably 1992 or something. Right, OK. You're a member of the London Improvisers Orchestra. When did that happen? Uh, that was kind of as much later, right. actually. Okay. Um, I think the trumpeter Ian Smith kind of phoned me up. He said, would you like to join me? I said, oh, wow, that sounds good, you know. And this must have been about 1997 or 98. OK. Uh, I don't remember the exact date, and at that time, we were kind of meeting at the Red Rose Club in Seven Sisters Road. Right. But it's now, it's, in fact, it's been completely pulled down now, that <laughs> building. But we were there for a, a, a long time, you know, ages before Cafe Oto. Yeah. It was, um, were there any collaborations that came from that, particularly from the London Improvisers Orchestra? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah you're certainly meeting Adrian. Although I'd known Adrian before. And this because, is Adrian Northover. Yeah, Adrian right. Northover. But okay. he suggested forming the trio with Kathy. In fact, I'd, I'd heard of Kathy vaguely because she, she'd been the subject of a sort of Time Out article. And there was a, oh, really? a sort of photo there. I mean, this is sort of years and what years ago. What was the article? I, I don't remember. It's so oh, long ago. But oh, it was God. probably about some contemporary music group oh, okay. she was in. So... Hadrian has suggested it, but before that, in about 1990, this is slightly before joining the orchestra, there's a friend of mine, Robert Powell, and he'd sort of come along to the, um, um, to the conspiracy concerts, because initially we had our own venue, which was a church hall, church hall in Vauxhall, and we'd like done our own concerts, the first ones we'd, we'd organised kind of separately. So going back to, so you, you started collaborating with Adrian and Kitty in Triptych. Yeah. yeah. I, and I was that think kind that of would a, be about 2004 or right. five. The stuff you're working with, was it different in any way or just a natural progression? Well, it, it certainly was um, different because when Kitty kind of lives only a short distance, she lives in Forest Hill, which is only about like 10 or 15 minutes walk from where I live. Right. In, 
Hatford. So when we first met, when a Adrian first suggested us playing as a trio, you know, she just happened to admit, um, I just happened to mention where I lived, and she, oh, yeah, that's right, you can bring your hamp round there. And her kind of sensibility coming from a kind of composed music background was totally different. And when she first heard me with my amp, I was, I was kind of miles um, too loud. She immediately <laughs> said, turn it down, I can't <laughs> play. So, I, so I've had to think, I've had to think much more in those terms. So know? you're playing objects yeah. with your amp? Yeah, I mean, okay, exactly right, the same. And in fact, there was a, a kind of period, you always learn things as you go along. Um, there was a long period up to about 1992. I, I just can't imagine it now where I, I didn't have a volume pedal at all. I was, yeah. I was um, playing at the same volume kind of all the time, you know, yeah. and I was playing kind of too much. I was playing all the time, not out of a near good svegatistic thing, no. but uh, uh, just not kind of sensitive, not kind of shutting up uh, for a long period, which I sort of try to do now a bit more. I mean, it was funny. I think I think it was Nick or or somebody in the band that that su um, suggested a volume pedal. Right. And it's kind of very easy to put one in, yeah. you know. But I mean, it, it's funny to think that for, for the first few years, it's all at the same volume. The amp, um, the amp volume was right. set, and that was it for the whole whole concert, you know. So. Unless you just really hit something a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. So I mean. It, Okay. It's very odd to think that now because the kind of volume pedal is kind of very important in what I do. I mean, sometimes I completely take it off right. because there's some sounds on my table that are very, very loud acoustically. Okay. So sometimes it's nice to um, not use any amplification. Right. You know. Okay, we might listen to yeah. one other piece just before we wind up. So okay. um, we'll pick something else and then have a quick chat. The time is just after 9am and I'm in the Akerling coffee house to eat egg, bacon, sausage and a fried slice. It's tipping down with rain outside. I'll then walk down to the tube station and take the train to Heathrow Terminal 1 for the flight to Frankfurt Airport. Having checked in, I'm standing in a long queue to go through customs. The woman at the checkout counter said I might have some problems taking my blackboard, black bag rather, on the plane because it's slightly too heavy. I hope it'll be okay. I don't fancy this uh, traveling in the hole with all the contact mics, foot pedal and mixer, also violin. But there were no problems going through customs. The time is now 11.25, seated at a cafe just opposite gate. 25 having a bottle of lager I felt a bit tensed up over what's happened in the last 10-15 minutes I suppose I'm over 
reacting to a certain extent. I'll only be happy when the aircraft takes off and we're on our way. To be 25 you were laughing while we were listening to that yeah. uh, v- yeah. I don't pronounce it right Wiesbaden Wiesbaden that, yeah, in part Germany yeah. f- okay part four so what kind of memories do you have of that or, or let's talk about the fact that it, this is a text piece and, and this was composed uh, uh, or uh, well not a, a text oh, piece as such I mean it, it's different I mean text pieces are very different to audio tapes okay. it's like uh, more an audio tape where I'm speaking fairly um, spontaneously and it's a tape that was actually named at the start so it's like um, I, 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 saw, I, I knew I was travelling to Wiesbaden for this kind of festival right. and it's, it's a, a situation, it was over a week, it's a long time ago now, 1997 or 98 and I, I flew over there with John Russell, the gu- guitarist, and it was a kind of very early kind of foreign trip. I'd only been on about two other trips. Oh, so were you working? Were one. you playing with him, or just going to a festival? Well, it was like a a situation where there's about um, ten improvisers, um, a sort of few of them German and whatever, and we just like played together together in various situations the whole thing was going like very intense so you'd play in the afternoon um just sort of improvising freely then you decide specific lineups and then they sort of take you out for a meal and you'd come back and you'd um play these lineups different ones every night it's it's very nice Mm. and i was like staying around the kind of saxophonist i think dirk midval or something he was part of the visa Barden improvising ensemble. It's like saxophones or bass and drums. Okay. And I remember it as being very enjoyable. It wasn't um, sort of any time for sightseeing. I think no. I think we did. I think I, I did look around Wiesbaden, which is like a fairly ordinary kind of German <laughs> town, really. You know. So did you did you record this piece there or when you got back? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I, 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 I recorded it there. I'm sure it was like a C90 tape that was meant to cover. Uh, that particular period. I'd like to talk about the different types of audio tape because something I've always tried to stress with these audio tapes, even if they are kind of musical trips, trips for music, music does not uh, necessarily dominate the proceedings. It's the it's it, it's the atmosphere around the music because obviously it's it's not me recording whole sections of improvising because that can be done can separately on on very good kind of recording equipment even at that time kind of digital stuff or but um, it's not really about that there's virtually no music on these a, a tape it's like a separate um it's like a separate agenda you're right, just trying to yeah. uh, record your own particular feelings during uh 
what's happening, you know, just yeah. explaining to people. And it, it's sort of self-indulgent in a way because I, I don't go out there with any kind of agenda. Um, you know, no. I'll, I'll, I'll say certain words. But having said that, l listening back to tapes, I am sort of a fairly self-critical about what happened because there are tapes that I've abandoned uh, for whatever reason. Really? Um, so you actually there's listen... too much word repetition okay. or that there's no... It's a kind of a very subtle thing, really, because sometimes that there can be no cohesion at all or you might lose interest. Um, so there's no there's no connecting tissue between one part and another. I mean, it's a very um, subtle thing, really. I mean can either work or not work or perhaps certain parts work better than others but I'm not really interested in whether people find it hugely exciting or not it's just a record of what you're doing and you hope and obviously I, I hope people find it enjoyable it but is other enjoyable people might find it completely tedious <laughs> because by its nature, it's, it's kind of slightly mundane. You know, you're talking about your everyday experiences. So, but so that's that like would be, social media. Yeah, <laughs> so, so that would be one um, type of tape. And I have uh, mm. done others perhaps more recently where you're not kind of referring to any particular person on the tape, but you're recording kind of during a, a sort of period of time. So, I mean, if it's a C90, for instance, the tape I'm making at the moment was on Grandi and D. Holden, who's an artist who lives out in Bedfordshire, and we were involved in a project with him, uh, with uh, Jonathan and Richard, where he, 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 he sort of filmed them in a... I don't remember what time okay. I wasn't able to go let's there. Let's just go... Let's, let's get more information about this. So this yeah. is um, your brother, John, Jonathan Bowman. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And... You, and Richard, Richard Thomas. Richard Thomas, and this is part yeah. of your secluded Bronte, or is yeah. it different? I mean, all these things, all these things are more kind of recent. Right, I, no, I've it's been interesting. With Jonathan since about nineteen ninety-seven. The trio yeah. of Richard, Rich, Richard was part of our larger ensemble, the Bowman Brothers Extended Family. Right. That kind of Jonathan okay. initiated. Yes. I must admit that. And so this, and this yeah. is a, a recent thing with the artist. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah that, that's very recent. I only, I only met Andy Holden for the first time when we did this sort of sound and music um, project. Okay, so tell me Finsbury a bit more Park. about this collaboration. So this is a new thing now. So you're doing recordings. Yeah. Well, it's just by chance. I, I suppose we because I enjoy doing it, really. There's no particular purpose because he's done his film. I just thought it would be nice to kind of record some um, tapes for him. So I started it off uh, today and there was a rather long kind of exposition. So it's like um, it's like I've almost finished the first um, side. It's only one day, you know. Because so, <laughs> I had scene... a long exposition kind of explaining in my in my kitchen what it was you know and that you said about the tape so that's a c60 uh no that's a c90 a c90 right but you can sort of use any length it's, it's nice to use irregular lengths because you can pick up all these 
of tapes from the library that they're kind of chucking out the okay. reading tape. All you do is put sellotape over the... Mm. They're all perfectly good. They're normal bias yeah, yeah, tapes. But because they're, they're people reading books, usually a bridge book, well, sometimes the whole mm. book... Um, um, they're all all kind of funny lengths, like, like sixty three minutes and uh, whatever it takes to kind of read the book in the form that they've decided to I see. do it. So that's nice as well to have the regular. And in fact, I was uh, looking around. I, I did some leafleting today. I went into a, a charity shop. Coming back uh, along Hatford Hill, it was like seventy five bus. Um, so I exited the bus slightly early. I found six kind of C90s, six six normal wire C90 unrecorded, still in the cellophane, and an old style rectangular set record. That's slightly more modern one, like a Sony one that's kind of fairly light. You know, you can always like sort of take that around. That was, uh, and the, but both those items one pound you know in a charity so, yeah. shop yeah That's so like, I, was, I, I was kind of i didn't think yeah. i unfortunately i'd not found much in that shop before but it was quite nice and i tested it out the set record and it's fine you know it's it's amazing it's all quite nice I mean, i'll certainly be able to use that in the future so um, so this is a tape and i'll, I'll probably do three of them where i'm, I'm kind of re referring to andy high name where obviously the V's Barton one, I'd sort of hang on to the original. I'd hang on to the master tape and copy that. So on, on those ones, I'm not referring to any particular um, person. So there's, there's like several types. And a sort of long time ago, I, I did do um, kind of like audio tapes that were more like the tape cut-ups. Right. Where you kind of record extracts from different um, kind of audio situation on, on the radio and television and film and then you join them all together so so that, that could include material that's similar to these other tapes but it would have all this other stuff so you, you probably get better record uh, you get sort of directly injected records <laughs> Things. I've not okay. done that for a long time, but okay. um, it's um, just another possibility, really. You know. Yeah. So. so, in terms of new projects or new things, is there anyone you're playing with that, or anyone new or interesting that you've collaborated with, or you're thinking of collaborating with? Possibly. Can't think offhand. No. I mean, kind of more recently, there was the. Um, like a duo with Andy, Andy the wine glass player, Andy Brown. Andy Brown, okay. Yeah, that's right. And how did you meet Andy? Um, I don't remember. I think I saw her live oh, or something, right. like what she did. And we did a, a performance where we were just playing wine glasses and other bits of glass right. and sort of read a text. Okay. But, but, I don't know if you've heard of him because years and years ago, it must be about 15, 16 years ago, I picked up this kind of video, and later there's a DVD about this person called Dale Chihuly, who's like a really big name in abstract, abstract glass blowing. Oh, right. And he had this huge, it must have been kind of mid-90s or perhaps late, he had this huge exhibition at the Victorian Albert. And he's just as this extraordinary figure, perhaps in his late sixties now. 
He did a sort of text piece that was based on, uh, I, I think it was like a DVD I bought subsequently, because one called Chiluli Meets the Mars to the Venice or something. It's him. So <laughs> okay. it's just like a collaboration with an abstract glass maker and he's like traditional kind of crafts. Oh my goodness. So he's a really interesting figure. I mean it's it, it's almost like a good commercial enterprise with uh with him now. You know, he, he, he like sells it from a factory in Carol. Right. Uh, I think I think it's in, in I think it's in like like Seattle okay. where he works. But uh that 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 was sort of quite interesting. And um just um in terms of the scene you've obviously played in London for a long time. Do you yeah. think it's changed much or do you think it's evolved in any different way? It, 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 it's really hard to say. I've not thought about that aspect of it. I mean, there's certainly more places to play when there are, than there ever were before. And sort of people of all ages playing it. It wasn't so much of the case that they'd be kind of younger improvisers years and years ago. And I suppose those are kind of genres, people mixing one genre with another sort of painting and drawing. Uh, so I think I think generally speaking, it's in a very kind of healthy state. You know, I sort of like a lot of what's going on at the moment. Yeah. And, and is there any new players you've seen, or um, anyone that you're thinking that you might work with, or not? No one comes to mind. Uh, no one comes to mind specifically. I mean, there's a lot of kind of ad hoc mm. improvising, you know, people kind of phoning you up and wanting to play, which is nice. So who's phoned you up recently? Well, uh, uh, Tom Jackson, the guitarist. We're doing a concert with him and the a vocalist is originally from New York, sort of Kay Arant. And, KJ and that's Gar at the okay. yeah KG Grant. That's at scale down, uh, the King and Queen. Okay. Uh, that venue. I mean, it's not that series of concerts, but where they have all the short sets, like fifteen minutes sets. And incidentally, um, um, Triptych have played there. Okay. Doing us like a series of short sets on an evening. Yeah. So, how many bands are you actually in right now? Would you Would you be able to? Well, uh, what do you say? Bands. bands. They're not, not bands. active no, all, all the time, but probably Just... the Bowman Brothers, then the secluded Bronte. Um, uh, a sort of morphogenesis, although it's it's like similar to a lot of bands that have been around for a long time. It's not functioning as a, as a group it, it's, itself. In fact, I don't think we've done a concert for about three or four years now yeah. so it, it's like all the members living in different obviously michael prime in southern ireland and then um obviously ron and the rest of us in, in different parts of london yeah. it, it's always been very difficult it's a very different mm. to the kind of aesthetic of just um, turning up with instruments improvising because it's essentially essentially live electronics band right. and trying to get everybody together and always there's a like a, a tradition that michael always has to join in and that's kind of difficulty because he okay. he wants his air fares 
sort of played and I, I i did suggest on several occasions that we could do a morphogenesis with a smaller lineup but it's never kind of really worked it's like a certain tradition right. that seems to develop that if it's morphogenesis it should be the whole band it and that's do, how many people um, it's not so, um, so it's some ad hoc right. thing you just have three people doing it or okay whatever, you know? so what well, it's about five it's mm. myself Clive, Clive Graham, mm. um, the other Clive Hall, Clive Hall, uh, and 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 the Ron Briefall. So I, I, I suppose it's four now, actually. But <laughs> <laughs> and just before we finish, just are there any recordings you're thinking of doing, or anything coming out? Um... Well, it, it, it's it's hard to say at this at this moment. I mean, as soon as the interview ends, I'll probably think of <laughs> probably a whole load. Of... But we we did do uh, recordings with this Panos Gikas, who's like the violinist in the uh, Bowman Brothers extended family. So that's four of us. That's, that's myself, Jonathan, Richard, uh, Richard Thomas and him. Uh, it's around his... Uh, around his house near sort of Turnpike Lane. Okay, and which and will that be so, out on a so label? That might be out out on a label. And then there's a tape from Philadelphia, a vitrine tapes run by Alan Mosek. And um, in fact, Adrian helped me record um, that tape. And originally we put it on, I mean, perhaps I shouldn't say too much about no. this if he okay. picks that. But we had to send it in another format. We right. put it on a, a, a CDR, but he wanted it in another kind of format. And what's but that label? Be, uh, well, that's called Vitrine Tapes, okay. and run by Alan Mosek. And he was uh, someone I'd not been in contact before, but he um, he originally um, sent, um, sent me an email and we corresponded. And we sent him some kind of material. So that'll be a C60 tape, right. um, kind of half of which is like prepared stringed instruments on two layers. Okay. And the other half is, is uh, talking from a particular tape. Okay. Um, so that's, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward. And I, I sort of sent him some artwork and everything. And it looks like that'll be out shortly. And there was another tape on on um, as my dance the skull tapes which is um, people I've only known uh, for about two or three years now an Italian couple that 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 that, that kind of are, are run their own tape from Sid um, tape label from Sydenham oh, okay. Sydney Marco and Bethania and that's sort of been in the can for about three years three really? years now I'm having to wait I think there's a tape with that singer Sharon you know Sharon Sharon Gal Gal okay. I, I think mine's a but I mean perhaps we shouldn't say no, say too much if they but, pick it up I don't want it to be delayed delayed, delayed anymore, anymore but we might was, hear, <laughs> we might hear a tape and so the label is called yeah. what's the label called uh, that, that's My Dance the Skull My and, Dance the Skull yeah My Dance the Skull okay and that is um that's something they suggested to me, which I thought was interesting. It's the book um, Junkie by William Burroughs. And I kind of mixed it with, as I sort of tend to do, very disparate sources. There was um, 
um, a kind of Hornby, you know, this company Hornby. When I was in the trains, Brighton, yeah, oh, okay. I found a, a like Hornby magazine or a catalogue, and I think there's like two versions of this piece. I, I can't remember what um, the other subject, and it, and there's also some music because there's a, a, a piece by Vorjak called the Dumkey Trio. So it's like Hornby, a piece is called Horn, Junkie Hornby Dumpkey. So it's, it's it's finding a sort of peculiar kind of type of relation between very disparate material and trying to blend it. I'd like to thank you, Adam Bowman, That's right, yeah. for this time. And um, yeah, we'll uh, listen to all of your works. Thank right. you so much. Thank you. Okay. The door to a store cupboard is open about 30 feet from the bar. Inside there's Ajax Jiff, a pair of yellow rubber gloves, a screwdriver, hammer and pliers, light bulbs, CMWS label hygiene. Extremely hard 